Take your Bibles this evening, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Begin a brand new study this evening on the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 1. Corinth was the most important city in Greece in Paul's day with a population of around 700,000 people. Corinth also was a very immoral place. Pleasure seekers went there to take a vacation from morality. The city's slogan, if it existed today, would be what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Sound anything like any cities you know in the world today? In fact, Corinth gained such a reputation for corruption that its very name becomes synonymous with gross immorality and evil behavior. The term to Corinthianize came to mean one who was given to immoral behavior. It is in this corrupt city that the Apostle Paul founded a church during his second missionary journey, according to Acts chapter 18. The moral corruption of the Corinthians can be seen vividly in the commonly practiced religious prostitution that was in connection with the temples of that city. It said there were 1,000 priestesses employed in religious prostitution in the temple of Aphrodite. Paul's letter written to this church is important because it deals with the problems and pressures and struggles of a church called to live for Christ in the middle of an unbelieving society. And although the church today faces new challenges, the issues that Paul talked about Church unity, sexual immorality, modesty, marriage and divorce, spiritual gifts. Those are all still issues that every pastor has to deal with in confronting the problems of modern day Christians who still struggle to live clean in their own Corinth. As Stuart Briscoe stated so well, the Corinthian church was both a marvel and a mess. Like many churches and many lives. Paul's intention in his first letter to the Corinthians is to preserve the marvel and clear up the mess. Now apparently the church had sent a delegation of three men, according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 17. He brought a letter that requested Paul give judgment on certain issues that were in the church at that time. I'll try to confuse you a little bit at this point. The first letter to the Corinthians is not the first letter to the Corinthians. The first letter to the Corinthians was lost. This is actually the second letter to the Corinthians. The second letter is actually the third letter, and the fourth letter is lost. So now, if you're thoroughly confused, we'll go on. Rather than just drop a whole 
wagon load of information on you this morning about Corinth and the time in which Paul wrote this letter. I'm going to share a little more with you about the the city of Corinth as we progress in our study. Just two things I want you to see about our study tonight. First of all, Paul reminds these individuals of who they are. And we see this in the first two verses. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sophonies, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all in every place, call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Paul reminds them of three things about their identity. First of all, they are the church. He says, to the church of God. The letter is addressed to the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. It means the called out ones. The church is not brick and mortar. It's not stained glass and paint and padded pews. But the church is the body of people who are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. When Christians gather for worship, the buildings merely provide the gathering place. And when we go our separate ways, the church goes with us, for we are the church. As the church, we're a fellowship of people who are called out of the world to live together, to love each other, and to serve each other with the result that the world would say, you know, the way you folks treat each other sure is attractive. John chapter 13 and verse 35, Jesus said, And by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The venerable Bible teacher J. Vernon McGee tells this story. He says, when I was a boy, my dad died and I went to work to support my mother and sister. And so I stayed with two aunts and a bachelor uncle. One aunt was a Baptist and the other was a Presbyterian. My uncle was an unbeliever and a beer drinker. Every Sunday, he would get up just in time for the noon meal. For dinner every Sunday, we heard all the Baptist dirt and all the Presbyterian dirt. Years later, when my uncle was in the hospital, one of my aunts wept and asked me, Vernon, why doesn't he come to Christ? And I almost told her. Friend, may I say, we do not win the loss by being Christian cannibals. Scripture says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. That is the type of thing that is turning the unsaved away from the church today. That's the reason they don't come in to hear the gospel. They hear the gossip before they can hear the gospel. Do you realize the most important commandment for a Christian is not to witness, not to serve, but to love other believers? 
I have to say, over the years, that I have seen exactly what J. Vernon McGee was talking about in my own family over and over. The Roman historian Tertullian wrote this report about the early church. He said, these Christians are very strange people. They meet together in an empty room to worship. They don't have any image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any time. And my, how they love him and how they love one another. I wonder if the same report could be given about us today. They are also the church at Corinth. Geographically, the church is located at Corinth. Because of its strategic location, it is on the isthmus. It actually has two ports, one on each coast. And it had such a narrow uh, strip of land there that they actually pulled boats and the cargoes across on land because it was about 200 miles around as far as uh, navigating goes. And because of its strategic location, there was an incredible amount of wealth that came into the city. It was a city that attracted all kinds of people as a result. Yet the city of Corinth had, had gained a well-known reputation for corruption, as we already mentioned. Its name had become synonymous with gross immorality and evil behavior. Corinth was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, and morally bankrupt. Yet it is encouraged to consider that there is no place on earth that is too immoral for God to do a work. The point is that you don't have to live in a particular place to walk with Christ. The very fact that a church should have been brought into existence in so wicked a place as Corinth was evidence of God's grace and of God's power. The church is at Corinth, but it is in Christ Jesus. The address of the church is not important. But the person of Christ is all important. We're told that they are also sanctified to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified here means set apart. Set apart from the world and set apart to God. It thus describes the position of all those who belong to Christ. It is the same root word that we get the word saint from, and holy. Sanctification is brought about in the life of a believer by separating themselves deliberately from all that is sinful and unclean, and by presenting themselves continually and constantly as His body, as a holy instrument to God to accomplish his holy purposes. For a lack of better <clears throat> word this evening, I'm going to describe sanctification in the three phases of sanctification. 
First of all, there is positional sanctification. That's instantaneous. It is the position that every Christian enjoys by the virtue of being in the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, there is progressive sanctification. It is the work of being set apart. Being set apart. It is something accomplished during the whole of a Christian's life. Second Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. So there's positional, there's progressive, and there's ultimate. Ultimate sanctification is also called glorification. It is the entire setting aside of a person's life that awaits the Lord's return, at which time the Christian will receive their glorified bodies. There are those within the Christian community that argue that it is possible for a person to attain perfection or to be completely sanctified in this life. Perfectionism, as it is called, is the belief that at least theoretically a Christian can get to the point that they no longer sin. I think this is based on a misunderstanding of the word perfect in the New Testament. The word that is translated perfect does not mean perfect in the sense without sin, but rather means complete or mature. While none of us will reach sinlessness in this life, it is our hope that we can all achieve spiritual maturity. So how do we envision this work of sanctification? Charles Ryrie, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, gave an illustration of these phases of sanctification in his book called Balancing the Christian Life. It's a story that concerns a little girl who had just come out of a candy store having spent her entire allowance on a lollipop when she spied her best friend coming down the street toward her. Being a properly brought up child, she knew that unless she could think of something quickly, she was going to be obliged to offer the lollipop to her friend. Her dilemma between courtesy and hunger was solved by an action which quickly, certainly, and forever sanctified the lollipop for her use alone. And that action was simply to lick it all over on both sides before her friend got there. By licking the lollipop, she set it apart for herself. It was now not something her friend would want. This is like positional sanctification. The moment we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, Jesus, God sets us apart for Himself instantaneously, certainly, and forever. But that first lick really didn't mean much as far as consuming the lollipop. Nevertheless, the little girl took care of that problem post-haste. 
she proceeded to keep licking the candy and making it practically what it already was positionally her very own. That is practical sanctification, and it continues throughout a believer's lifetime. But finally there comes the time when the whole of that candy is completely in her mouth and stomach, when it is totally possessed by her. So it will be with us when we go to be with Christ, we will be totally and completely and forever set apart and possessed by Him. So sanctification is the process of being made in practice what we already are in position, a process that culminates in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Now, the verse that we just looked at in Corinthians stands in clear contrast to the teaching that sanctification is a distinct work of grace whereby a person obtains an eradication of the sin nature. The Corinthians were far from what they should be, as we will see in this book. They were far from what they should be in practical holiness. But the fact remains that they were already positionally sanctified by God. They're not only sanctified, they're called saints. Now, the Catholic Church holds that in order for a saint to be a saint, that person must have performed certain miraculous works, certain number of miraculous works, over a period of years and has to be voted into that position by the church. Paul says that everybody who is saved is a saint. The people who are saved, they are saved but they remain in Corinth. When God saves them, He doesn't take them immediately to heaven. Instead, they are to remain in Corinth, a wicked city, and there they were to be saints. To quote J. Vernon McGee again, all of mankind is divided between the saints and the ain'ts. If you ain't in Christ then you are an ain't. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. John MacArthur puts it a little more eloquently when he says the church at Corinth was particularly worldly and immoral, yet in his opening words, Paul stressed that every one of them who had truly believed in Jesus Christ was saved and was a saint. Every believer has the right to call himself a saint. So you can go home tonight, tell everybody that you're Saint Les or Saint Barbara or whoever you are, and that will be completely accurate. I'm not saying you won't get any argument, but it'll be completely accurate. Not only are the saints saved, but all the saved are saints. None of us is worthy of that title, but God has declared us to be saints. Secondly, I want you to see Paul reminds them of what they have. Before dealings with the, dealing with the problems that confronted the church at Corinth, the apostle Paul wanted to remind them of what they possessed. 
And so he reminds them of the four things that they possess. First of all, they are genuinely saved. I thank my God, verse 4, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. The basis for gratitude in every believer's life is grace. The Corinthians, as every true believer, has experienced God's grace by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Grace is the source of every blessing, and peace is the result in the life of a person who has accepted the grace of God. They are genuinely saved. They are generously endowed that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. This church has been greatly blessed. The Corinthians have received sound teaching both under the Apostle Paul himself and by the great teacher Apollos. They have reason to thank the Lord for the great teachers that he has provided for them down through the years. And each of us, in turn, should periodically reflect on the great men and women that God has used in our lives to teach us His truth. They are third, securely established. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, and the word confirmed means established or made sure or stable. They've been instructed to the point that they were stable in their understanding of the gospel. And finally, they are spiritually gifted, verses 7 through 9, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom will also confirm you to that end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul says that the Corinthians have everything they need. There was not one area of spiritual giftedness that the Lord had not provided for the church at Corinth. It is my contention that God provides within every local church those individuals with the gifts that are needed to sustain and grow that church. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and in verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It is true, I believe, that God places in every local church those with the corresponding gifts that are needed there. But then, of course, it is up to that individual as to whether or not they will use that spiritual gift that God has given them for the growth and maturity of the church. I think the theme of this whole letter 
is captured in verse number 9. It says, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All of the problems that Paul is called upon to address, all the problems that your church of today faces, all the problems there reflect the difficulty that comes when believers realize that they've been called as agents of God to spread God's love in a place in which they ultimately do not belong. We're aliens. We are pilgrims passing through this place. This world is not our home. We're here as ambassadors of the king. As Paul so eloquently tells us, we need to get about the business of proclaiming Christ in our Corinth, the place that God has placed us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message tonight. Thank you for continuing to love us and care for us and challenge us, stretch us and cause us to grow. I pray that you'd help us to recognize that you've placed us here. And you've placed us here for a purpose. There's something that we can do. Something that no one else can do. Some part that we can play. Father, I pray that you'd help each of us just to to locate that part. To do that which you've called us to do. Help us to be agents of your love. Help us really to be one of those kind of churches that unbelievers can look at it and say, oh, how they love one another. Oh, how they take care of each other. Oh, how they can continually reach out to them. Help us to be that kind of church, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand with me.